Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is best-selling author and journalist Naomi Klein, author of the books No Logo, Taking Aim at Brand Bullies, and The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. The Shock Doctrine was made into a short film by Alfonso Caron, director of Children of Men, and also made into a feature documentary by Michael Winterbottom. Naomi is also a contributing editor for Harper's and a reporter for Rolling Stone, and writes a regular column for The Nation and The Guardian. Her new book is called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. And now, here's our interview with Naomi Klein. All right, so we're here with Naomi Klein. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so your new book is called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. And in the book you write, quote, Science fiction is rife with fantasies of terraforming, humans traveling to lifeless planets and engineering them into Earth-like habitats. The Canadian tar sands are the opposite, terra-deforming, taking a habitable ecosystem filled with life and engineering it into a moonscape where almost nothing can live. So just tell us a bit more about that, about just the level of destruction involved with some of these modern extraction techniques. Yeah, so the tar sands, I think of the tar sands as the whole at the center of my country, being a Canadian. And it's quite extraordinary because this mining, this huge mining operation, which is actually the largest industrial project on Earth, the tailing ponds can be seen from space, they're so large. Um, it's been going on for, you know, a couple of decades, really, and not it, it picked up, the, the current boom picked up when oil topped $100 a barrel. Um, so it's, you know, it's sped up and it's been going on for a long time. But it's a strange thing where even though it was happening inside Canada, Canadians weren't even able to believe it because it's, you know, it's happening in the north in a fairly remote part of the country. Every year there'd be a new documentary that would come out with images from it and then it would sort of disappear from view. It's only in the past few years that there's been a sustained debate about what is going on in northern Alberta. And a lot of that has to do with the, the movement in the U.S. against the Keystone XL pipeline, which would carry the diluted bitumen from Alberta through the United States. And it sort of took that for Canadians to believe that this terra deforming or this flaying of the earth was actually happening in our country. Um, you know, Mao talked about a war against nature. But when you're there, when you're in the tar sands, it really does feel like a war. A big part of that is... Um, the cannons, the use of these huge sound cannons to scare away the birds, because there have been several incidents where hundreds of birds, um, of particularly ducks, have died because they landed in the tailing ponds. And that's been really bad publicity for the tar sands. So they they work very hard to keep the birds from landing. And what that means is when you're in the region, you're just constantly hearing artillery. Um, and so this war against nature really feels like more than a metaphor. <laughs> Well, yeah, and then in addition to just looking terrible, it sounds like it seeps out all over the place and contaminates water and gives people horrible diseases and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, and the people who've been raising the alarm uh, about what's been happening in the tar sands for longest are indigenous people, First Nations people who live downstream um, and have been reporting uh, strange incidents of cancer, very, very rare forms of cancer. 
and there have been a, a, a couple instances of really courageous doctors, uh, uh, in particular a family doctor named John O'Connor of Irish descent who had the job of serving some of these remote communities and noticed um, these strange diseases cropping up and started speaking out about it and then was the subject of an extraordinary kind of witch hunt where um, the government tried to smear his reputation in various ways. He's been cleared and, you know, is still working in the region. He's just a fantastic person, um, just, just such a committed advocate uh, for the health of the people he's there to serve. Um, but he's really, you know, been put through the ringer. And it sent out this message to other healthcare workers and indeed to other scientists that, um, you know, criticize the tar sands at your peril because our government, we have, you know, I sometimes joke that we're keeping the Bush-Cheney legacy alive in Canada because we have a very right-wing government and its its base is is in Alberta. Um, they get a lot of money from the oil industry and, and um, they've really merged uh, in many ways with the extractive sector. Um, so they, you know, they go after opponents quite seriously. So you have these health impacts and in many ways, you know, these open pit mines are the ones we always see pictures of I mean, because to the naked eye, they are so, it is so disturbing to see the earth sort of skinned alive on this scale. It isn't just mining, right? It's just this massive area that, um, you know, where all the trees and are gone. And, um, but actually the growth in tar sands mining is happening in what's called in situ mining. And that's mostly underground. Um, there is something to see above ground, but it's more like what you see in terms of fracking. Um, so the real action is below the earth, and the, the mining industry is always taking people on tours of these in-situ mines going, look, we're not doing that really ugly stuff anymore. Everything's under control. But in fact, that form of, of mining, in-situ mining, is even more dangerous, and it's just that because we can't see it, it makes us feel better. But um, you know, what they're doing is they're sort of superheating the earth, bringing it to a very, very high temperature. Um, and this um, is leading to some of the same sorts of things we're seeing with fracking, um, where they're, it, it's creating... Um, spills that are not spills the way we think of them, right, in terms of like a, a pipe breaking, right? It's actually causing a crack in the earth and the oil just seeps up uncontrollably. There's a spill uh, in northern Alberta of a company called CNRL, Canadian Natural Resources Limited, um, that's been going on for more than two years and they don't know how to stop it because it isn't a breakdown of machinery. They've literally broken the earth and the oil just keeps coming out. Now, you, you say in your book that if we continue down this road that we're on, we're going to end up with a dystopian world, like something out of Mad Max, Children of Men, The Hunger Games, or Elysium. Um, could you just tell us, like, what do you think that these sort of movies tend to get right or get wrong about the kind of future that we're headed toward? You know, it's less that we're going to have a world exactly like those movies. I mean, what disturbs me is that we are so convinced that that's all we're capable of, that that's the future we just keep imagining for ourselves and you know we change the details a little bit you know uh, maybe it's in a train maybe there's a planet hovering over the earth you know um and uh you know maybe it's yeah this capital and the colonies right um but it's the same story it's the one percent of the one percent and everybody else just getting screwed and you know increased militarization um to control the angry masses in this post-apocalyptic landscape um so First of all, I think what, what these films tell us is that we're taking a future of environmental catastrophe for granted. 
um, as if it's already a foregone conclusion, and it's not. You know, it's not too late to prevent catastrophic warming. We have locked in uh, a certain amount of warming, but if we were to get serious about cutting our emissions now, we could prevent catastrophic warming. So, you know, I think in many ways it reinforces the idea that there's no point trying. Um, and it also just reinforces how much harder, you know, I start the book with, I think, as a wonderful quote from Kim Stanley Robinson, which I can read if you like. <laughs> it's uh, a sure, bit long. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. He says, um, in my books, I've imagined people salting the Gulf Stream, damming the glaciers, sliding off the Greenland ice cap, pumping oceans into the dry basins of the Sahara and Asia to create salt seas, pumping melted ice from Antarctica north to provide fresh water, genetically engineering bacteria to sequester more carbon in the roots of trees, raising Florida 30 feet to get it above water, and hardest of all, comprehensively changing capitalism. (laughs) And so, you know, I think what I love about that quote and why I wanted to start um, the book with it is that it's acknowledging that our, our biggest failure is a failure of imagination, that, that it's easier for us to imagine this dystopic sci-fi future than it is for us to imagine changing capitalism because it is the air we breathe. And, um, you know, that's why the book is not just a delineation of, you know, disaster capitalism, climate change style. It is an attempt to chart a different response to crisis in which humans could come together as opposed to apart in the face of crisis. And, um, and that's the hardest part, you know, of, of my work is actually convincing people that, that we're capable of something other than this brutal response to disaster. Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of the, the brutal response, I mean, one of the things that strikes me the most is that these powerful corporations and organizations that are funding the climate denial movement are at the same time making contingency plans for when it happens, because they know that it will. Um, could you talk about some of the some of the ways that the wealthy are planning to protect themselves when climate change happens? Well, I mean, first of all, there's you know most of the denial is happening in in higher latitude countries that are more protected, um, and where there's certainly a feeling that wealth will protect you from the worst of the impacts. Uh, for, you know, at least this generation and, and, and maybe for your kids. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think there's lots of examples of how companies are preparing. I mean, the most sort of insidious is the way oil companies, um, you know, have been funding climate change denial, um, you know, are simultaneously exploring all the wonderful extraction opportunities there are because the Arctic ice is melting, right? I mean, so they obviously know it's happening and they're investing big time in getting... Uh, oil, you know, out from underneath the, the melting ice. Um, but then I think, uh, you know, you've got lots of examples of, of opportunities in, in the insurance industry um, and more, more and more you see big insurance companies uh, offering plans to countries, including quite poor countries, of, you know, you can prepare yourself for climate change by buying an insurance policy for us, insuring your public infrastructure, for instance. So basically what happens in the context of climate change is it becomes more expensive to be poor, right? Poverty makes countries and, and people more vulnerable to climate change, but then in, in preparing and, and dealing with the, with the impacts of climate change, uh, poor countries have to spend more. And this issue of whether wealthy countries are going to help uh, poor countries to adapt to climate change by 
uh, footing the bill for seawalls and so on. I mean, that's at the heart of it. But the truth is we aren't. Our governments are not uh, stepping up to provide anything like the resources necessary for developing countries to prepare for climate change. So they are increasingly turning to private insurance companies who are going to make a killing off this. Well, yeah, and I just want to mention some of these crazy things like these hurricane-proof apartments in Manhattan, yeah. and you've talked about private private firefighters. Yeah, I mean, you know, after Hurricane Sandy, after Superstorm Sandy, um, there was a big uptick in the way luxury um, developers in New York and elsewhere started to market themselves as being disaster-proof, right? having their own backup generators, um, you know, kind of having their own moats in a way, you know, having um, storm barriers and, and, um, and basically saying, yeah, when the apocalypse comes, you know, you'll be safe. Um, and uh, the best example of this is actually not in this book, but in, in the shock doctrine, which was, uh, you know, when I tell people this story, they, you know, they, they can't actually believe it's true. But in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, there was a company that was launched in Florida uh, called HelpJet, which was a, and I say was because actually this was a short-lived company, but I'm sure it will reemerge in some form or another, this, this basic idea. But HelpJet was a private disaster re rescue operation um, that literally had the slogan, we'll, you know, we'll turn your disaster into a luxury vacation. <laughs> um, and um, it was a, yeah, a charter airline that would tell you, you became a member of HelpJet. So it's sort of on a country club model, you pay your annual dues and you'll be alerted when a hurricane's headed for your coastal uh, dream home and whisked away, you know, in a limousine, brought to the airport, put on a private jet, and they um, would make your five-star um, vacation plans for you, and you would just wait the whole thing out. So, um, you know, this is why, you know, no, no sci-fi movie can surprise me. <laughs> well, and just the example of the private firefighters I want to mention, because it's so crazy to me that you would have people, uh, you know, when a wildfire is sweeping into an area, you say that people will just, they'll go and spray Houses, particular houses to prevent them from fires and leave the other houses to burn. Yeah, we saw it. it this first emerged um, in California. There was, um, I think it was 2008, there were uh, very intense forest fires, uh, wildfires. Um, and AIG, interestingly enough, given their later history, um, started uh, selling these gold plated insurance plans um, where you know, for extra money, you would um, also get protection from private firefighters who would come to your house and spray your house in fire retardant so that, uh, you know, your house would be um, a safe when others were not. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's, it's also just kind of crazy because, um, you know, firefighting is something that really doesn't make sense to do on a house-by-house -house basis. <laughs> Um, and it just, it does show this sort of breakdown of any kind of sense that our fates are intertwined and, and that we need collective responses. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about geoengineering, because I think some people ha are holding out this hope that science and technology are going to come and save us. So um, just talk a little bit about what you think about the prospects of a techno solution to climate change. Yeah, and I think as it becomes clear that, you know, as, as climate change becomes harder to deny and as it becomes clear that our governments are not introducing policies on anything like the scale that are required um, to lower emissions rapidly, um, these ideas that seemed completely crazy, sci-fi, far-fetched, you know, just a few years ago start to sound a little bit more realistic. 
Um, and uh, yeah, in the book, I quote a um, the name of a gathering that was held in Washington in I think 2010. It was hosted by Slate magazine, and um, it was the, the name of the gathering was "Geoengineering: A Horrifying Idea Whose Time Has Come?" Question <laughs> mark. Um, and that's the sort of um, tone of a lot of the discussion. I mean, most people are not excited about this who are involved in these discussions. It's just this idea of inevitability. Um, and once again, it seems easier, more realistic to dim the sun than to put up solar panels on every home in the United States. And that says a lot about us, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, what we think is possible, what we think, you know, is realistic. Um, and so, yeah, I went as part of the research for the book, I went to um, a few conferences of scientists um, and ethicists who are, um, you know, engaged in kind of normalizing this really abnormal idea that we would um, take control over the Earth's systems on a planetary scale. Um, the technique I spend the most time discussing in the book is the one that gets taken most seriously, and that's the reason why I spent as much time as I did. Um, and that's solar radiation management, which is just surreal, <laughs> um, managing the sun. Uh, but this is the idea, you know, colloquially it's sometimes called the Pinatubo option, the idea of spraying um, sulfur into the stratosphere in order to have a mirroring effect and, and reflect um, a portion of the sun's rays back to space um, and in so doing, cool down the planet. Uh, and there are various techniques that um, have been floated to get the sulfur up there from uh, planes uh, through the exhaust system of planes to a very, very long hose, um, if you uh, want to go with Nathan Mirvold's option. And, uh, you know, I, I find it really frightening that SRM gets discussed as a relatively kind of sure thing, uh, a geoengineering technique, because what... Uh, a lot of the climate modeling shows, but also what history shows, because this is an attempt to mimic uh, very powerful volcanoes that in which um, sulfur does go up to the stratosphere as opposed to lower atmosphere. Um, and what we've seen after Pinatubo and other such eruptions is uh, you know, widespread drought interference with monsoons in India and, and Africa. Um, and so we're talking about gambling with the food and water supply of um, billions of people on Earth and some of the people who are least responsible for the climate crisis. And so, the, you know, for me, what I find most terrifying is not exactly the technology, but how a technology like this would be used, would be deployed by powerful governments who have already made it clear that they are discounting the lives of the poorest people on the planet who also happen to overwhelmingly be black and brown. So we're already doing this by allowing temperatures to increase as much as we are. It, you know, and we're doing this with the full knowledge of the risks. So unless we radically change who we are, then we would deploy geoengineering technologies according to these same values. And that is really scary when you see how geographically um, you know, unfair some of the impacts are. You know, David Keith, who's one of the proponents of this research, if not the deployment, you know, he's, sometimes he sounds like he's an advocate of the deployment, sometimes he sounds like he's not, um, you know, but he says, well, no, that this isn't true because it could be deployed in a way that was good for Africa. But the issue is, do we think that that's how it would be deployed, right? Do we think it would be deployed to save Africa? Because if we wanted to save Africa, we'd be cutting our emissions.
Well, yeah, I mean, you also quote David Keith as saying that uh, if this went wrong, it could create a scenario sort of like the movie Snowpiercer, where it plunges us into a a new ice age, a a snowball earth, he calls it. Yes. Yeah. Um, You know, he, David Keith talks a lot about the things that scare him most uh, about geoengineering. And, you know, he also talks about scenarios where you have multiple geoengineering deployments going on simultaneously in a kind of, and, you know, the U.S. does something that, you know, that is seen as an act of aggression on India and India does its own counter geoengineering. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, David Keith certainly explores the downsides, but ultimately he keeps coming back to the idea that this is the lesser of evils. And I'm afraid that it could be really evil. <laughs> yeah. Well, you also make the point that Lowell Wood, who's one of the main proponents of this, uh, that, that before he got into geoengineering, he was best known for coming up with some of the more fantastical elements of Ronald Reagan's Star Wars missile defense program. So these aren't people who have a a really strong track record of success. And Mirvald, you know, has a track record making pretty unstable operating systems for Microsoft. (laughs) So, I mean, no, I think, you know, in general, the the geoengineering world is populated by very overconfident, overwhelmingly male figures who don't make me feel at all reassured that they have learned the lessons of large-scale technological failure. You know, when I went to this one conference, which was hosted by the Royal Society in England, the Fukushima disaster uh, had just started. And in fact, the photographer who I was working with, the videographer, had just come back from Fukushima, was completely shell-shocked. Um, and I was amazed that it didn't come up the whole time we were meeting um, because it seemed relevant to me that, yeah, we humans screw up. So shouldn't, you know, BP had been, you know, two years earlier. Um, and, you know, for me, I have been profoundly shaped as a journalist by covering the BP disaster, the derivative failure, you know, um, seeing what's happened in Fukushima. You know, I'm sorry, but I think the smartest guys in the room screw up a lot. And the kind of hubris that I've seen expressed from the geo clique, as they've been called, you know, makes me uh, not want to scale up the risk that we're taking. Well, so um, if nuclear and geoengineering are not real solutions to this problem, uh, what is a solution in terms of technology, in terms of uh, renewable energy? Like, what would you propose? See, I mean, what I find really striking is that, you know, we're going to these high-risk technologies um, even as the evidence shows that much lower-risk technologies are ready for prime time. I mean, there's been such huge breakthroughs, um, both technological breakthroughs and price breakthroughs for decentralized solar. Um, Now, you know, we can look to a country like Germany that is now getting 25% of its electricity from renewable energy, much of it wind and solar. Um, So, you know, the technologies are there. We've got research like um, uh, Mark Jacobson's research out of Stanford University saying the U.S. could get its power 100% from renewable energy by 2030. The technology is there. What's lacking is political will, Um, you know, which is why I find it so striking that somebody like Bill Gates would you know, refer to renewable energy as cute and uneconomic and throw his lot in with geoengineering research and you know, next generation nuclear. So what is it about these technologies that is so easy to dismiss when they're proving themselves on such a large scale already? And, you know, I think it's a really important and interesting question. And I do think there is something about 
renewable energy that is really unsatisfying and borderline threatening to people who really subscribe very much to this idea that it is the role of humans to dominate nature and to sort of crack the code. And Gates is always talking about how we need a miracle. And in his search for miracles, he overlooks the things that are right in front of us. Um, And I think there's something quite deep going on, which is that, um, you know, if you go back and look at the way fossil fuels were marketed in the 1700s, when coal was first commercialized through the commercial steam engine, the Watt steam engine, the great promise of coal was that it liberated humans from nature, that you no longer had to worry about when the wind blew, you know, to sail your ship, and you no longer had to build your factory next to a waterfall or rushing rapids in order to power your water wheel. You were in charge. That was the promise of coal. It was a promise of man transcending the natural world. And that was, it turns out, a lie. We never transcended nature. And that, I think, is what is so challenging about climate change, not just to capitalism, but to our core civilizational myths. Uh, Because this is nature going, you thought you were in charge? Actually, all that coal you've been burning all these years um, has been building up in the atmosphere and trapping heat. And now comes the response. And so, you know, I think the thing about renewable energy is, you know, it gets called the word we always hear is unreliable, and even though, you know, that's changing and battery power is making it uh, much more reliable. I think what it's really about is that renewable energy puts us back in dialogue with nature. We have to think about where the wind blows. We have to think about where the sun shines. We cannot pretend that place and space don't matter. Um, we are back in the world. And I think there are people who really consider that a demotion. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's great. Um, but I I've, have had to recognize that not everyone agrees with me. <laughs> okay, so, so now some people might say if solar and wind are so promising, they're going to continue to become cheaper and fossil fuels are going to continue to become more scarce. So all we need to do is wait and sooner or later, the market will take care of this problem, right? What would you say is the, the problem with that? I think the, just, the problem is really simple. And that's that it has to happen sooner. It can't happen later, right? And so this idea that we would gamble with our collective fate and just leave it in the hands of the market is you know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there's what other existential crisis could you imagine our political leaders going, yes, we're all, you know, we may face death on a mass scale, but we're just going to leave it to the market because sooner or later it will fix it, right? Was that the response to 9-11? Was that the response to, you know, the nuclear threat? Was that the response to Pearl Harbor? I mean, like we don't respond to genuine things we consider to be genuine collective crises in that way. And the truth is we have failed to respond for so long that there is what Michael Mann calls a procrastination penalty. You know, it is not 1992 anymore. We didn't just sign the climate convention. It's 2014. Our emissions have gone up every year. And now if we're going to stay within our carbon budget, which is, you know, we know what it is if we're going to keep temperatures below two degrees Celsius warming, um, then we need to be cutting our emissions by around 8 to 10% a year. And that's not something the market can deliver. You know? And some people have you know, argued with the book by saying, well, you know, look at this great solar company. They're you know, proving that capitalism is compatible with climate action. And you know, look at the boom in clean energy. Or, um, and that's not a response, right? Because the argument is not that 
people can't make money off of green energy. They can, but capitalism is infinitely adaptable. So we can have a boom in in clean energy simultaneous to a boom in new fossil fuel extraction, simultaneous to a boom in uh, disaster capitalism and the, all the things we were talking about earlier of just sort of profiting from the wreckage, right? Capitalism can do it all simultaneously and it will not get our emissions down in time. So if we want a science-based the emission reduction plan, we can't leave it to the market. That's the argument I'm making. Not that the market has no role in the solution, but that we can't leave it to the market. And it seems like any time that you criticize capitalism, people assume that you must be in favor of Stalinism or something, right? Like it's this choice between Gordon Gekko or Stalin, and those are our only two choices, and you don't want Stalin, right? <laughs> well, um, I have to be honest with you. I think I didn't realize the extent that we were still in that narrative, in that binary, you know? I think if I'd known that, I might have chosen a different <laughs> um, because I really did think that we had evolved enough of a discussion about the failures of this economic system and in the sort of post-Picketty, you know, phase, we actually could talk about the failures of capitalism without it being assumed that you're advocating Stalinism. But it seems I overestimated hmm. um, where we're at because I think, yeah, you know, in the book, I'm very clear that state socialism or what was called socialism was catastrophic for the planet and much as our current system is. And, and uh, you know, one of the only times we've seen a significant drop in carbon emissions is when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, so, you know, that's all in the book. But I think because capitalism is in the subtitle of the book, there is this assumption that I'm advocating returning to Stalinism, which is, yeah, a little annoying. But, you know, hopefully some people will actually read pages. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing that you do seem to be advocating is uh, a post-growth economy. And you say that actually John Maynard Keynes and John Stuart Mill both advocated this. Um, so what, what do you mean by a post-growth economy? So this comes back to the numbers again, right, which is... Um, all of this is based on the assumption that we should take our governments at their word when they say that they're committed to keeping warming below two degrees Celsius. Um, so this is what they agreed to in Copenhagen in 2009. It's, I actually think it's quite a dangerous target, and, and we, they should have committed to just doing whatever was possible to lower emissions and not gamble with turning up the heat that much, because that's more than twice what we've already done, and we're already seeing very damaging impacts of climate change. Uh, that said, that's the target. And if we're going to take that target seriously, then we need to be lowering our emissions by the levels we just discussed. So 8 to 10% emission reductions is not compatible with an economy that has the pursuit of economic growth as its driving force. Um, you just have a straight-up collision between the growth imperative and the need to cut emissions. So that doesn't mean that you can't have parts of your economy that will grow. In fact, you clearly will, right? If you're going to cut emissions, then you need to invest massively uh, in all kinds of infrastructure to reduce demand. Um, you know, you need an incredible light rail system. You need to rethink your cities. You need to invest hugely in public transit, and you obviously need big, big investments in, in a new energy grid. Um, and all of this, the tricky thing is, is going to burn fossil fuels because we have an economy that is built on fossil fuels. So you've got to burn fossil fuels to get off fossil fuels. So you're actually going to create a spike if you're serious about this. And that's why you have to contract other parts of your economy. And you actually have to tackle demand. You have to use less energy. So some people call this selective degrowth. Um, 
think really what we're talking about is a much more planned economy than we have right now. And this is, makes a lot of people very nervous. I understand why, because it does sounds like communism to plan an economy. And, you know, that was one of the great triumphs of this sort of ideological talking points of the Cold War was this idea that there was something sinister about trying to plan your economy. But you're not going to cut emissions by 8 to 10% in the absence of a depression, right? Um, without planning. So it's either great depression or great transition. And if you want a great transition, you've got to plan it and you have to plan where you want to contract and you have to plan where you want to expand. And we have to get out of this idea that any kind of contraction is a disaster. And I mean, that's obviously that's going to require changing a lot of people's minds about various things. And one of the things that really interests me is the power of science fiction, the power just of stories to to change people's minds. Um, when my parents were in college, they went to see a double feature of uh, Silent Running and Soylent Green. And they came home that night and joined Planned Parenthood and uh, the Sierra Club. So I do, you know, I, I do know that people, you know, that science fiction can motivate people in that way. Um, in, in the research you did for this book, did you see the kind of movies and books and science fiction um, having any of that sort of impact on people that you met? Well, you know, I think the, the, this boom in cli-fi uh, literature is, I mean, I think it's exciting, but I think it can become dangerous if it isn't seen as a warning, but just seen as the sort of inevitable. I, I think Margaret Atwood, not to like be too Canadian about it, <laughs> I think, um, I think Margaret Atwood's, um, you know, in the year of the flood and that whole trilogy, the whole climate trilogy um, is an example of the kind of narrative that really does serve as kind of clarion warning, um, as opposed to just sort of hopeless, we're on this road, we can't get off. And it's hard to define what makes something more of a warning than just affirming that sense of the inevitable. Um, I loved Ursula Le Guin's acceptance speech at the Booker Awards this year. <laughs> Um, where she, you know, she talked about why science fiction, um, and I should say I'm like a huge Ursula Le Guin fan. And I think, you know, she's one of the few science fiction writers that pulls off utopian science fiction well, has, you know. Um, and, you know, she's done both, but I think... Um, you know, when she accepted the award, she sort of accepted on behalf of the genre and, and talked about just how important it is to have and nurture voices um, from people who can imagine different worlds, you know? I was sort of struck, though, in your book, you talk about some teenagers, I think, who were protesting and they had a um, a banner that was a slogan out of the Hunger Games. Yeah. And yeah. I just thought it was interesting that that became the focus point of their protest. Well, it is. I mean, you know, who knows how these narratives filter through the culture and how they change, you know? I mean, who would have thought that all these years later, um, the imagery from V for Vendetta would be, hmm. um, you know, on the streets <laughs> and, and the iconography of, you know, the anonymous movement and so on, you know? And actually, I mean, speaking of kind of young people protesting, I thought it was interesting that you've been involved with this divestment movement. And there was this quote in your book that really, really struck me where you're talking about 
trying to pressure colleges to divest from fossil fuel interests. And you say uh, young people have a special moral authority in making this argument to their school administrators. These are the institutions entrusted to prepare them for the future. So it is the height of hypocrisy for those same institutions to profit from an industry that has declared war on the future at the most elemental level. Yeah, that's, I mean, that the, the, the speed with which that movement has spread has just been incredible. And it comes out of research that was produced out of England, the carbon tracker research that originally it was called the carbon bubble research. And I mean, what's interesting is that that research was um, tailored to the investment community, right? It was, it was a warning to investors, like you're, you are investing in companies that have a bubble because our governments have agreed to keep emissions below this two degree temperature target. And the fossil fuel sector has five times more carbon in its proven reserves than is compatible with that target. Therefore, um, clearly governments are going to enforce this target at some point and these will become stranded assets. And when I read that research, you know, I called um, my friend Bill McKibben and, you know, he read it too. And, you know, we both agreed that well-meaning as it was, that's not what we took away from this research. What we took away from it is that the fossil fuel companies had simply decided that our governments didn't mean it when they set that two-degree target and that they were fully intending to burn uh, all that carbon. And it was essentially a declaration of war. And, you know, Bill wrote that incredible piece for, for Rolling Stone, Do the Math, um, which, you know, it's, to me, it's such a wonderful example of just defying everything that we're told humans will respond to and are capable of, you know, just working in publishing and film, you're constantly hearing from cultural gatekeepers who tell you what people can and cannot absorb or what they want to read. And, you know, here's this, you know, first of all, 350.org, right? The organization that Bill founded and that I'm a board member of, you know, who would have thought that that would have worked as a name for an organization, you know, 350 parts per million of atmosphere. It's this incredibly wonky, um, you know, name for an organization. And yet, you know, it went totally viral. And then Bill writes this piece, do the math, like on its own, you, you would think that that wouldn't have worked. And the piece is just, you know, patiently crunching these numbers and explaining to people why the business model of fossil fuel companies necessarily means we're going to push temperatures to four to six degrees warming. And, you know, it launches this movement in this incredible way, hundreds of divestment movements. And, it, you know, it, now it's global. I mean, it's happening all over the world. And it's not just schools, it's faith organizations. You know, I think people, you know, armed with that information have just, it's what they needed somehow to just say, okay, you know, we're not all equally responsible for this. You know, there are players who are much more invested in locking us into this this cataclysmic future, and we need to take them on. And I think that this is really what the environmental movement has been missing for far too long, because it's always been this, we're all in this together, let's all hold hands, and climate change was supposed to be this issue that, you know, we are all in together, even Dick Cheney has grandkids, you know, don't be divisive, don't be polarizing, and it's just like, actually, no, um, you know, there are sides in this thing, and there are forces, they may well love their grandkids, I'm sure they do, you know, um, but they also think their wealth is going to protect them. Uh, from the worst impacts of the crisis that they're creating. And there needs to be a strategy of confrontation, not just partnership, which has been the model that dominated before. 
So, I mean, if there are people, particularly students listening to this right now, and they want to try to get their school to divest, do you have some sort of plan that they could access to try to do that? Well, there's a website, Fossil Free. They should just search on Fossil Free. And, um, you know, all the tools that they need are there in terms of the arguments and linking up with other campaigns. I mean, this just has a life of its own. And chances are there's already a fossil fuel divestment movement on their campus. Um, You know, if they're not in school, then, you know, they can get involved at their municipal level. But I do think that young people have this very critical role to play um, because they you know, are going to be dealing with the worst impacts of climate change. And because we now have the numbers and because we have now done the math, we know that these industries have a business model that's not compatible with a safe future for young people. Um, and I do think that we need to hear, you know, we need more and more young people speaking at a national and international level. You know, I start the book with this quote, from a young woman named Anjali Apadure, who uh, is a Canadian. Uh, She was 21 at the time, and she was, uh, it's just crazy, but at the UN Climate Summit, there's only one speaking spot allocated for young people to speak on behalf of the young people of the entire world. (laughs) And Anjali got the job um, when the climate uh, conference was happening in uh, 2010 in Durban, and she gave this absolutely unbelievable speech, which is really worth looking up online. But the line that just slayed me was she said, you've been negotiating all my life. And it's just such an incredible thing to say and think about, right? Here's this, you know, very poised young woman, 21 years old, and our governments at that point had been meeting for 22 years <laughs> to try to lower emissions. And in that time, emissions have gone up by 60%. So she said, you've been negotiating all my life. And then you know, she ended the speech with this call to get it done. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it changed the whole conference. It was the moment that people will never forget. And it's just one example of, you know, when young people find their moral voice in this crisis, it's transformative. I mean, you mentioned that you're fairly critical of some of the approaches that environment, uh, particular environmental organizations have taken. And, and this book is um, is fairly critical of certain individuals like Richard Branson and some uh, environmental leaders. Have you gotten any sort of response um, from any of those people to their portrayal in the book? Um, I heard from Branson. Yeah, he wrote me a letter. He's not happy. Um, <laughs> and uh, But, you know, I'm really careful <laughs> in my reporting. Um, and I have an amazing team of researchers and fact checkers and lawyers, <laughs> you know, so there's nothing wrong in the book, you know, and I think if there was anything wrong in the book, I probably would have heard from Richard Branson's lawyers, not from him. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm careful in the book to say what he promised. My source for all things Richard Branson is Richard Branson, <laughs> you know, um, you know, he made a lot of statements uh, about what he was going to do in terms of shifting his profits to funding the fight against climate change. And, you know, what he says is, no, I I only promise the profits from my um, transport businesses and my transport businesses haven't been profitable. But in fact, you know, he said that sometimes, but then at other points he said it was if they weren't profitable, then he would get the money from other parts of his operation. Um, So I see I have all of that in the book. Um, And it all comes from various, you know, statements he's made in, you know, including in his own autobiography. Um, Bill Gates 
was confronted by a journalist about information in the book about his fossil fuel investments, because he's got major fossil fuel investments. And his response was, he hadn't read the book, but he, um, you know, said that uh, renewable energy wasn't ready yet, and we couldn't kill the fossil fuel industry or something to that effect. Which I thought was quite an extraordinary statement, considering that the Rockefeller family has announced that they're divesting from fossil fuels. So surely, if the Rockefellers can divest, Bill Gates can too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a previous episode of the show, uh, it was the episode we interviewed Kim Stanley Robinson, but we talked about this idea of does nature need legal rights, like constitutional rights? Do they need uh, representation in Congress, that sort of thing? And you talk about in the book, I think it was Ecuador maybe is, is um, starting down that path. What do, you, what do you think the future is for changing the legal status, sort of legally empowering nature to protect itself in the political arena? Well, yeah, Ecuador and Bolivia both have rights of nature language in their constitutions. Um, and I think both Ecuador and Bolivia show that, you know, just having the rights on paper isn't going to be enough because, uh, you know, both countries are engaged in some pretty dubious extractive projects, uh, particularly Ecuador, as they push into mining for uh, oil, drilling for oil in the Amazon, um, in the Yasuni National Park. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes maybe just like getting the rights on paper gets a little overplayed. Um, but I, I think they can be legal tools. I'm not entirely clear on how powerful those legal tools can be just from what I've seen so far. But, you know, I think we should be doing, you know, whatever we can. And some of this is coming to the U.S., particularly in the context of communities that want to uh, protect themselves from natural gas fracking. Um, and some of this rights of nature language is being used at the local level to protect watersheds. Um, and, you know, I think if it is in conjunction with a really mobilized community committed to having these rights enforced, it can be one important tool among many. But I don't think it's a silver bullet, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, and then I understand that there's a documentary that's going to accompany this book. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, so it's just in the final, final post-production. Um, my husband is in the sound mix right now. Um, so it's almost done, and um, and hopefully we'll be premiering it in the new year, in early in the new year. Um, and it's it's an interesting process in that uh, it's not a documentary of the book in that it was made alongside the book, uh, as opposed to you know Michael Winterbottom made a film of the Shock Doctrine a couple of years after the book you know, came out. Um, and this is really a sort of a parallel project that my husband as a documentary filmmaker um, was doing as I was writing the book. Um, I, you know, I'm really excited about the film because it, it reflects the fact that there is this huge growing movement taking on fossil fuel extraction um, around the world. And, you know, a book is always ultimately going to be, you know, if it's a sole authored book as opposed to an anthology, no matter how many quotes you have in it, you know, it's one person's voice. And um, what I love about this film is that it's really a symphony of voices and really reflects the fact that this movement is you know, incredibly diverse, incredibly global. Um, and I think that that in some ways has a better chance of piercing through the public cynicism uh, about the idea that we can change things. Uh, and I have found that even, you know, when I tour with the book, um, 
you know, at several events, I have a, uh, like a panel after I give my talk, I bring up different people from the climate justice movement to talk about how these ideas are playing out in these local communities where, you know, wherever I happen to be. And it makes the event so much better because it isn't just about, you know, someone coming in and telling them something. It's they're able to see how it is. The resistance is actually already happening in their communities, what the plans are to shift to renewable energy. And it just gives it a completely different feeling. So I feel like the film will do that. And it's also just really beautiful. <laughs> and the, it's shot with a red camera with, with the, the RED. And, um, and it's one of the first documentaries that's shot using this camera. And also it, I mean, my husband is way techier than me and they use drones and they, you know, and uh, a big theme of the book, particularly the part of the book about these resistance movements is that they're so driven by love of place. You know, these are not, even though they're sometimes called, you know, anti-fossil fuel movements or, you know, anti-Keystone XL movements, that's not what they are. They really are movements that are driven by a love for the land, love of, you know, people's love for their children and determination to protect them, protect their health. And that comes through so strongly, but also the cinematography of the film, I think does an amazing job of just showing how much there is to love and protect. All right. So there's just one other uh, quote from the book I really wanted to read. So you quote an activist named Jess Housty as saying, when my children are born, I want them to be born into a world where hope and transformation are possible. I want them to be born into a world where stories still have power. Um, could you just talk about what you think she means by that, a world where stories still have power? Well, Jess Housty is an amazing young woman um, from the Health First Nations um, on uh, an island called Balabella in British Columbia. And uh, she is part of this movement that's been fighting the a tar sands pipeline called Northern Gateway. It's owned by Enbridge. And it's even more controversial than the Keystone XL pipeline because it goes through um, some, you know, incredibly beautiful, intact uh, boreal forest uh, in BC. And um, it's fiercely opposed by First Nations um, in BC. And then the other issue with it, and this is what in particular mobilized um, Jess's community, is that the the oil will then be loaded into tankers that will navigate some really treacherous waters um, that are you know, battered by storms. And their fear, being a community that relies on the ocean for their food and, and their whole culture is based on, on the sea and on this salmon runs. And, and uh, you know, their fear is another Exxon Valdez disaster, like disaster and what that would do to the fisheries. Um, so, I think what Jess was saying in that quote is that um, that she comes from people who you know, trace their lineage back 10,000 years to this part of the world, and their stories are embedded in that territory. So it, they aren't stories that can live if the land dies, um, if the animals die. Um, and so this project is not just a threat to animals, it's a threat to a culture if I can paraphrase her. <laughs> Completely brilliant. Uh -huh. All right. So we're all out of time here. Is there anything else? Just finally, any final comments you want to make? Any websites you want to give people? Anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I would... Um, one of the great projects that um, we were able to launch with the book was we teamed up with 
a group of people who did this book called Beautiful Trouble, which was this kind of activist guide of like different resistance tools. And they um, have this new project called Beautiful Solutions, um, where they're highlighting not just how to sort of monkey wrench the system, but real living alternatives that, you know, are are out there happening, not just theory, but kind of a roadmap um, where if you connect the dots to the kind of world we should fight for. Um, so if you go to This Changes Everything and then go to the Beautiful Solutions part, um, it'll, it'll make your day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So we've been speaking with Naomi Klein, and her new book is called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. So Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Naomi Klein for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Semelius in Germany and MCJ14 in the U.S. Semelius writes, Horizon expanding interviews with a diverse selection of interesting guests. Really glad I discovered this. Thank you, Wired. And MCJ14 writes, Never has listening to a couple people sit around talking been so much fun. I've added so many new books to my to-read list since I began listening to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. The author interviews are great, much longer and more casual than what you usually get, and the discussion topics are a blast. So big thanks again to Semelius and MCJ14 for those great reviews. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Abigail Drake, Peter Byrne, Wes Weathersby, Nick Suffolk, and Jason Lind. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, Visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.